Chapter 25, Part 1 of Gilbert Keith Chesterton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dick Bourgeois Doyle. Gilbert Keith Chesterton by Maisie Ward. Chapter 25, Part 1. The Reluctant Editor, 1925 to 1930. I tell you not for your comfort, yea, not for your desire, save that the sky glows darker yet and the sea rises higher. From the Ballad of the White Horse. Could Gilbert have divided his life between literary work, his home at Top Meadow, and those other elements called in the autobiography friendship and foolery? That life might well have been, as he himself called it, indefensibly fortunate and happy. But he could not. Part of his philosophy of joy was that thanks must be given for sunsets, for dandelions, for beech trees, for home and friends. And this thanks could only be the taking of his part in the fight. He would never, he once said, have turned of his own accord to politics. It is arguable that it would have been better if he never had. But his brother had plunged into the fray with that very political paper, The New Witness, and his brother's death had left it in Gilbert's hands. He felt the task to be a sacred legacy, and when the paper died for lack of funds, his one thought was how to start it again. For many months he kept the office in being and paid salaries to a skeleton staff, consisting of Mr. Gander, a deaf old manager, Miss Dunham, now Mrs. Phillips, and an office boy. Mr. Titterton would stroll in and play cricket with the office boy with a paper ball and a walking stick. Endless discussions were held as to how to restart the paper, and whether under the old name or a new one. Bernard Shaw had his own view. He wrote, 11th of February, 1923, My dear Chesterton, Not presumed to dictate, I have all Jingle's delicacy, but if everybody else is advising you, why should not I? T.P.'s Weekly always had a weekly sound but it established itself sufficiently to make that form of title the trademark of a certain sort of paper. Hence, Jack O'London's Weekly, it also set the trade sheep running that way. You have the precedence of Defoe and Cobbett for using your own name, but D.D.'s Weekly is unthinkable and W.C.'s Weekly indecent. Your initials are not euphonious. They recall that brainy song of my boyhood. Up P.D. G.K.C. K.C. KC, GKC, 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 KC, KC, GKC, KC. Chesterton is a noble name, but Chesterton is weakly, spoils it. Call it simply Chesterton's. That is how it will be asked for at the bookstalls. You may be obliged to call Leader Ventures Chesterton's Daily or Chesterton's Annual, but this one needs no impertinently superfluous definition. Chesterton's perennial is amusing enough to be excusable, but a joke repeated every week is no joke. A picture cover like that of Punch might stand even that test if it were good enough, but where are you to find your Doyle? Weak is a detestable, sniveling word. Nothing can redeem it, not even the Sermon on the Mount. Seven days is better, but reminds one of the police court as well as of the creation. Every seven days would sound well.
but Chesterton's leaves no room for anything else. I am more than unusually sure that I am right. Frances quite agrees with me. How would you like it if she were to publish a magazine and call it Fanny's First Paper? Ever GBS. If Gilbert answered this letter, his answer has disappeared. He seems to have asked permission to publish it, probably with a view to collecting further opinions. 10 Adelphi Terrace, London, WC2, February 16th, 1923. My dear GKC, of course you may publish any letter of mine that you care to, at your discretion. But not only will the publication of a letter from me not add one to your circulation, nothing but a permanent feature will do that, but it may lead you to disregard the advice I give to all the people who start labor papers, about two a week or so, which always is, don't open with an article to say that your paper supplies a want. Don't blight your columns with messages. Don't bewilder your readers with the family jokes of your clique, else there will be no second number. Ponder this. It is sound. Your main difficulty is that the class whose champion you have made yourself reads either Lloyd's or nothing. To the rural proprietor, no longer a peasant, art, including Bellette, is immorality, and people who idealize peasants, unpractical fools. Also, the Roman Catholic Church, embarrassed by recruits of your type, and born scoffers like Belloc, who cling to the church because its desecration would take all the salt out of blasphemy, will quietly put you on the unofficial index. The Irish will not support an English journal because it occasionally waves a green flag far better than they can wave it themselves, and the number of Jews who will buy you just to see what you say about them is not large enough to keep you going. Thus, there is absolutely no public for your policy, and though there is a select one for yourself, one and indivisible, it is largely composed of people to whom your oddly assorted antipathies and pseudo-racial feuds are uncongenial. Besides, on these fancies of yours, you have by this time said all you have to say so many thousand times over, that your most faithful admirers finally, and always suddenly, discover they are fed up with the new witness and cannot go on with it. This last danger becomes greater as you become older because when we are young, we can tell ourselves a new story every night between our prayers and our sleep. But later on, we find ourselves repeating the same story with intensifications and improvements night after night until we are tired of it. And in the end, which you have not yet reached, a story revived from the old repertory has to last for months and is more and more shaky as a protection against thinking of business or lying there a prey to unwelcome reminiscences. And what happens to the story of the imaginative child happens also to the sermon or to the feuilleton of the adult. It is inevitably happening to you. That is the case against the success of Chesterton's. Your only chance, finally, is either to broaden your basis or to have no basis at all, like Dickens in Household Words and All the Year Round, and say, give me something with imagination in it, and I can do without politics or theoretic sociology of any kind. This is perhaps the only true Catholicism in literature, but it will hardly serve your turn. 
because all the articles and stories that Dickens got are now mopped up by the popular press, which in his day stuck to politics and news and nothing else. So I am afraid you will have to stand for policy, or at least a recognizable attitude, unless you are prepared to write a detective story every week and make Bellock write a satirical story as well. You could broaden your basis if you had money enough to try the experiment of giving ten poor but honest men in Beaconsfield and ten more in London capital enough to start for themselves as independent farmers and shopkeepers. The result would be to ruin eighteen out of the twenty, and possibly to ruin the lot. You would then learn from your feelings what you would never learn from me, that what men need is not property, but honorable service." Confronted either with 20 men ruined by your act, or 18 ruined, and one fascination fledgeby, owning half a street in London, and the other half a parish in Bucks, you would, well, perhaps join the Fabian Society. The pseudo-race feuds you should drop, simply because you cannot compete with the Morning Post, which gives the real thing its succulent savagery, whilst you can give only a wouldn't-hurt-a-fly affectation to it. In religion, too, you are up against the fact that an editor, like an emperor, must not belong to a sect. Wells is on the right tack. My tack. See my prefaces to Androcles and Methuselah. We want the real Catholic Church above the manufactured one. The manufactured one is useful, as the Salvation Army is useful, or the formulas of the Church of Christ Scientist. But they do not strike on the knowledge box of the modern intellectual. And it is on the modern intellectual that you are depending. I am an Irishman and know how far the official Catholic Church can go. Your ideal church does not exist and never can exist within the official organization in which Father Dempsey will always be efficient and Father Keegan futile, if not actually silenced. And I know that an officially Catholic Chesterton is an impossibility. However, you must find out all this for yourself, as I found it out for myself. Mere controversy is waste of time, and faith is a curious thing. I believe that you would not have become a professed official Catholic if you did not believe that you believe in transubstantiation. But I find it quite impossible to believe that you believe in transubstantiation any more than, say, Dr. Salaby does. You will have to go to confession next Easter. And I find the spectacle the box, your portly kneeling figure, the poor devil inside, wishing you had become a fire worshipper instead of coming there to shake your soul with a sense of his ridiculousness and yours. All incredible, monstrous comic, though of course I can put a perfect literary complexion on it in a brace of shakes. Now, however, I am becoming personal. How else can I be sincere? Besides, I'm going on too long, and the lunch bell is ringing. So forgive me, and don't bother to answer unless you cannot help it. Ever, G. Bernard Shaw. Meanwhile, Shaw, as usual, responded cordially to Gilbert's wish to make him an early attraction in the paper, but also, as usual, urged him towards the theater. 10th of December, 1924. By all means, send me a screed about Joan of Arc for the cockpit, but I protest I have no views about her. I am only the first man modest enough to know his place, O'Pradell, as a simple reporter and old stagehand. 
You should write plays instead of editing papers. Why not do George Fox, who was released from the prisons in which Protestant England was doing its best to murder him by the Catholic Charles II? George and Joan were as like as two peas in pluck and obstinacy. GBS. The specimen advance number was published before the end of 1924. In the leading article, G.K. gave his reasons for agreeing finally to use his own name, although in the form attacked by Shaw. He had first viewed the proposal with a horror which has since softened into loathing. He had looked for a title that should indicate the paper's policy. But while the policy was in fact a support of human normality, well-distributed property, freedom in the family, yet the surrounding atmosphere was so abnormal that any title defining our doctrine makes it look doctrinaire. A name like the Distributive Review would suggest that a distributist was like a socialist, a crank, or a pedant, with a new theory of human nature. It is so old that it has become new. At the same time, I want a title that does suggest that the paper is controversial and that this is the general trend of its controversy. I want something that will be recognized as a flag, however fantastic and ridiculous, that will be in some sense a challenge, even if the challenge be received only with genial derision. I do not want a colorless name, and the nearest I can get to something like a symbol is merely to fly my own colors. Although the paper was never exclusively Catholic, that flag was for G.K., as it had been for Cecil, of a very definite pattern, very clear colors. Religiously, the paper stood for Catholic Christianity. Socially, for the theory of small ownership, personal responsibility, and property. It was in strong opposition especially to socialism and even more to communism. Bernard Shaw, Gilbert once said, wanted to distribute money among the poor. We want to distribute power. During the last part of Cecil's editorship, his wife had been assistant editor of The New Witness, and she had so continued when Gilbert first became editor. She was neither a Catholic nor a distributist. Religion seems not to have interested her, and her political outlook was entirely different from Gilbert's. In the Chestertons, she dismissed distributism as quite without first principles, and a pious hope and no more. Obviously, it was impossible for Gilbert to start his new paper with an assistant editor in entire disagreement with his views. I have sometimes wondered whether his intense dislike of having to tell Mrs. Cecil this was not almost as strong a factor in the delay as the money problem. I have learned, as this book goes to press, that Mrs. Cecil became a Catholic in 1941. There was no break in their relations. She went on writing for the paper, doing chiefly the dramatic criticism. But it's clear from her own account of the incident that she wholly misconstrued Gilbert's attitude and did not realize how far she herself had drifted from Cecil's views as well as from Gilbert's. Shaw wrote again, Reed's Palace Hotel, Madeira, 16th January, 1925. My dear GKC. The sample number has followed me out here. What a collector's treasure. Considering that I had Cecil's own assurance that my quintessence of Ibsenism rescued him from rationalism and that it was written in 1889, I abandoned rationalism consciously and explicitly in 1881, I consider John Prothero's introduction of me to your readers 
as a recently converted materialist rationalist to be a most unnatural act, and it would serve her right if I never spoke to her again. Rationalism is the bane of the church. A Roman priest always wants to argue with you. A Church of England parson flies in terror from an argument. A fundamentally sensible course. George Fox simply knocked arguers out with his I have experimental knowledge of God. St. Thomas Aquinas was like me. He knew the worthlessness of ratiocination because he could do it so well. And yet, despaired of the inspirationalists in practical life because they did it so badly. JKP doesn't know her way about in this controversy, and I cannot take up her challenge. What makes me uneasy about the prospectus is that you drag in anti-prohibition. You might as well have declared for brighter London at once, or said that the paper would be printed at the office of the morning advertiser. You run the risk of the money coming from the trade. However, non ole. Only remember the fate of all the editors, Gardner, Donald, Massingham, etc., etc., who have written without regard to their proprietors. The strength of your position is that they can hardly carry on with your name in the title without you. But they can kill the paper by stopping supplies if it does not pay. And the chances are that it will not. I've never had a farthing of interest on my shares in the New Statesman, and I don't expect ever shall. Therefore, keep your list of shareholders as various and as uncommercial as you can. Get Catholic money rather than beer money. As I am the real patentee of the distributive state, and the DS is socialism, and as furthermore the church must remain at least neutral on prohibition, as in the United States, where a Catholic priest has just set a praiseworthy example of neutrality by bringing about a record cop of bootleggers, and as the success of prohibition is so overwhelming that it is bound to become a commonplace of civilization. You must regard it as at least possible that you will some day make the paper socialist and dry, with a capital. Therefore, do not undertake to oppose anything. Stand for what you propose to advocate, whether as to property or drink or anything else, but don't state your solutions as antitheses. By the way, don't propose equal distribution of land. It's like equal distribution of metal. Rough on those who get the lead, and rather too jolly for those who get the gold. Your equal distribution must come to equal distribution of the national income in terms of money. The 500 pounds a year is absurd. Do you realize that it is 250 pounds at pre-war rates and subject to heavy taxation? Net 375 pounds pre-war, 182.10.0. You have sold yourself into slavery for 10 years for 3 pounds 10.2 a week. Are you quite mad? Make it at least 1,500 pounds, plus payment for copy. Ever GBS. Of course, it was not merely a question of inadequate payment for his work. As time went on, a large part of the financial burden of the paper had to be carried by him. Lord Howard de Walden helped generously, and so did Mr. Chivers. Other donations came in, but mostly very small ones. No proper accounts were kept no watch and how the money went, and from time to time Gilbert would pay off a printing bill of 500 pounds or so and go ahead hoping for better times. 
The money aspect did not worry him, I think, at first. There was always more to be made by a little extra effort, though a time was to come when every extra effort wearied him cruelly. But there was one thing he could not bear. Quarrels on the board or on the staff, and above all the suggestion that he should adjudicate. He was a bad judge of men, one of his staff told me. He never shirked an intellectual issue, but in practical crisis, he was inclined to slide out. He could never, said another, stand up to accusations from one man against another. The first start was made with the existing staff of three. Miss Dunham was sub-editor and was usually left to see the paper through the press. G.K. would come up once or twice a week and dictate his own articles. You never knew when he was coming, she says, but you always knew when he was there, by the smell of his cigar. He was practically a chain smoker, and he always used the same brand. He left drawings on the blotter and everything else. He had no idea of time, and when he said, I think I'll go out now, he might stay out for an hour or so, or he might not return at all. Lighting a cigar or cigarette, he would make a sign in the air with the match. He never omitted this ritual, and Miss Dunham thinks it became like tapping the railings was to Dr. Johnson. He used to come in and swing about on his little feet, she said, and it is true that his feet, like his voice, seemed too small to belong to the rest of him. Her great difficulty was that she could not get him to read and select among the contributions. Too often, this was left to her, and she felt painfully inadequate to the task. For the first year, all the notes of the week were written by G.K. Then he got Mr. Titterton as assistant editor, and after that said the assistant editor, with simplicity, You could always tell good Titterton from bad Chesterton. Everyone who worked at the office adored G.K., especially the little people, typists, secretaries, office boys. He was so kind, Miss Dunham said. He never got angry, never minded being interrupted. If his papers blew away, he never got impatient. His patience hurt one. She had never seen him angry. That the paper was ever got out seems wonderful, as the staff recall those days. Yet I think that all the stories about Gilbert's inefficiency as editor have contributed towards an impression that I shared myself until quite lately, that G.K.'s Weekly was immeasurably inferior to The New Witness. Going more carefully through the files, I have begun to question that impression. The paper was produced under certain obvious disadvantages. Even spending some days a week in London and telephoning freely, it is not easy to edit a paper from the country. Gilbert thought of himself as a bad editor and was not, in fact, a very good one. The contributions he accepted were uneven in quality. Both leaders and notes of the week, when not written by him, tended to be weak imitations of either himself or Belloc, tinged at times with an air of omniscience, tolerable in Belloc, but quite intolerable in his imitators. Just occasionally, the equally unedited notes and leader were in contradiction of each other, yet the paper remains an exceedingly interesting one. Analyzing my earlier and late impressions, I concluded that my earlier feeling of boredom sprang from the inevitable effect of the new witness coming first, and therefore having been read first. It is a disadvantage of consistency that, as Bernard Shaw remarked, you have said the same thing, you have told the same story, so often as the years go by. End of chapter 25, part 1.